With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. I guess we got it going. Pretty excited. Um, we're starting our brand new series, as Pastor Jake shared with us a little bit. Um, we're going to be looking into the greatest sermon in the history of the world. And we find that in Matthew uh, chapters 5 through 7. He's shaking his head at me. So we're going to start our recordings next week. This will just be the intro. <laughs> so, sorry if, uh, if you end up listening to it online or tell a friend to listen to it online and it starts, you know, in 20 minutes into the sermon, they're like, I'm so lost. Then maybe we'll put the notes up there or something like that so everybody can, can check back on it. But we're not even going to start the actual list of the Beatitudes, but we will get to it. So that just kind of tells you how thorough we're planning on being in this, this study that we're going to go over, and it's going to take quite some time. So the first thing I had to do when I thought about this was kind of look at the history of the author, and I wanted to look at the history, uh, what happened before this sermon in the book, because Matthew actually was not written chronologically. Uh, we'll get into that in a little bit. And so I wanted to know more about Matthew, the gospel, um, who wrote it, all that good stuff. And so it's the first one in the New Testament. So anybody that's been in church for more than a day, you, you know, Matthew starts the New Testament. There's songs, you know, lots of people learned it different ways. The, the Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and John, Acts, and then the Roman. There's like all sorts of different ways people have learned it. I know, I could sing the whole thing, right? Uh, but the book of Matthew actually comes... In the order of the 66 books, after this period of silence, it was 400 years between the last book, Malachi in the Old Testament, and Matthew in the New Testament, there's this 400 years of prophetic silence. And we had seen the minor prophets, we'd seen the major prophets, and God was in this habit of constantly speaking to the people. And there was always something going on, and God had something to say, and he was using his people to do it. And, and then there's nothing for 400 years. And the people are starting to wonder, you know, possibly, did God forget about us? What's going on? And then this crazy guy shows up in the desert. Camel's hair, eating locusts, I mean, just looking ratty and just living out. And everybody's like, man, what is this guy? And it, we find out later, this is John the Baptist. He's coming in and he's heralding in uh, the Christ, the, the next prophet is to come. So now this 400 years of silence has now got a voice and so that 400 year break happens and he comes in and he he comes to confirm or affirm who Christ is um, and that not God had not forgot his people but indeed there is something great that's happening and he had a plan and this is the beginning and so you go through the first couple chapters of Matthew uh, it's written around 65 AD according to scholars it's believed that it was written by the apostle that we know as Matthew there's not like 100% guarantee, but based off of a lot of the writings and stuff, we definitely know it came from a Jewish guy. There's a lot of things that would suggest that, you know, uh, Matthew, who was a tax collector, uh, came in and he was able to 
take very detailed notes because that's what they did. And if you look at, you don't have to turn with me, but I have it um, in Luke 5. I know Matthew chapter 9 talks about it, but I figured we'd go to an outside source for this. In 527 through 29, we see the calling of Matthew into uh, being one of the disciples of Christ. It says, after that, he went out and noticed a tax collector named Levi, he being Jesus, noticed a tax collector named Levi sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, follow me. And he left everything behind and he got up and began to follow him. And Levi gave a big reception for him in his house. And there was a great crowd of tax collectors and other people who were reclining at the table with them. So the way that the tax collectors worked is they, they would often tax uh, the imports. So they would sit out on the, on the city roads, what we would know as like the highways, the main entryways into all the cities, and they would collect taxes on the, on the imported goods. And it was a corrupt position. I mean, this dude was jacked up because what, what they would do is they would, they would have this money, they would pay their taxes to the government, and then they would come and they would collect the taxes from the people and kind of recoup that. But they would charge the people more in taxes than they were paying to the government. And they, people couldn't say anything because he's sitting there with a couple of guards behind him. And who's going to stand up to these Roman guards and go, oh, yeah, I'm not going to pay my taxes. And they don't know the numbers. They're not the educated ones. The tax collectors are educated, take very tedious notes, very detailed descriptions of people and how much they gave. And so they can basically tax people whatever they want. Because there's, the people aren't going to stop them. The guards don't know any better. And so it's a very lucrative, profitable uh, business for them. And they extorted uh, far beyond what they owed to the government. So it's a really jacked up process. Like, if you really look at this guy, this guy's life was messed up. But, I mean, we all are. We all are. But at this time, like, they were like the most hated people. Right? So... Jesus comes and he sees this guy sitting there and he says, hey, follow me. There's not this detailed like, hey, here's who I am. Here's what I can offer you. Here's all the promises I'm going to make for you. All you got to do is follow me. And then he's like, oh, yeah, let's do that. No, that's not what happens. He just gets up and responds. And not only that, he throws this huge party. He throws this party and he invites everybody. He's got other tax collectors there. And now you know that you know, like, th this is like a serious proclamation, right? Like, the most jacked up people are now at this party, and he was one of them, and he's saying, you know what, I'm giving up this lifestyle, and I'm going to invite all my friends who are tax collectors, and they're going to know I'm giving up this lifestyle to follow this man, right? Talk about some sort of commitment. And I thought, dang, despite Matthew's sinful past, he was uniquely qualified to be a disciple. He was uniquely qualified to write this gospel that chronicled the life of Jesus, in the sense that, like I said, that he captured the smallest details. He was used to writing down everything. So if there was somebody who was qualified to do it, he's clearly one of them, right? Uh, the problem we have is that... Oh, sorry. Uh, the, I wrote this down. This is something that stuck out to me. Is that God needs no one, but where faith is present, he can use anybody. He can use anybody. So he took this jacked up guy and he used him. I'm standing here before you. I'm a jacked up person, but God said, hey, you know what? I want you to respond. And now I'm standing here and hopefully, you know, 
he looks at me and he's proud of me for that. But I do it because it's a response to what he called in my life. So what do we know about the Gospel of Matthew? We, we now know that we believe it was written by Matthew around 65 uh, AD. We see around 130 AD, a guy named uh, Papias, he's an early bishop, and he wrote that Matthew, referring to the son of Alphaeus, his dad, compiled the oracles in Hebrew, or the sayings of Jesus in Hebrew. So this all was written originally in Hebrew, and some suggest that this is part of what's known as the synoptic problem. Now, the synoptic problem, it's, it's a little bit deep, so try to stick with me here. I, I made a little graph for you. Hopefully, it'll help make a little bit of sense, right? So, the synoptic gospels are the first three, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And they're called that because they're all very, they're the same stories of, of Jesus' life, all written by three different guys, three different purposes. Um, for Matthew's purpose, he was a Jew, and he was writing to the Jews to try to convince them using language that this guy, Jesus, is the Messiah. He's the one that we've been waiting for. And he used terms like um, the kingdom of heaven in his writing. It was something that the Jews would understand. So Matthew wrote his, Luke wrote his, and Mark wrote his. But it, Mark wrote his first. So Mark wrote his. Matthew and Luke are believed to have used Mark as a reference because 97% of Mark can be found in Matthew and Luke, right? You guys sticking with me so far? I know it's a little bit, little bit complicated. So Mark is 3% unique. That's what that number in the top left corner is. Matthew is 20% unique where it's not written about in the other Gospels. And Luke is 35% unique, where there are stories in Luke that aren't in the other the Gospels. Are you with me so far? Then it's believed, this letter Q, the little purple circle right here, it stands, it's the German word quell, Q-U-E-L-L-E, -L -L -E. it just, it means source. It's the German word for source. And so Q is this other source that they believe that Matthew and Luke have same stuff that's not in the book of Mark. So they believe that they used a different source on an outside thing to say, hey, this is, this is where they got the information. This is why it's the same. Matthew obviously followed Jesus his whole life. And so he got firsthand experience as his stories, whereas Luke did not. Luke was actually a follower of Paul. And so his information came, you know, secondhand. He did interviews. He looked at, you see the genealogy in Luke. Um, so you see that the little circle on the outside, Luke had some other information. It was, he was getting it from other people. You, are you following me? You look a little confused. We good? Okay. If you have questions, that's why we're here. I know it's a sermon, but go ahead and give me feedback on that, okay? So this is the breakdown of how it was written. Mark was written first. Matthew and Luke were written about the same time. They, all, they both used Mark. M Matthew and Luke used Q, and Luke used an outside source. That's, I know, a lot to take in. I've got that printed out if anybody needs to still look at it. <clears throat> so Matthew's purpose in writing was to prove to the Jews that Jesus was the Messiah. And he points this out in many different ways. He shows the fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy. He writes the genealogy, talks of the virgin birth. He speaks of uh, Jesus coming out of Egypt. He uses terminology familiar to the Jews, as I said, the kingdom of heaven. He tells the story uh, of Jesus, and the story of Jesus kind of parallels the story of the Israelites back in, back in Egypt, right? So if you look at Jesus coming out of Egypt, it parallels Israel coming out of Egypt. 
If you look at the baptism in the Jordan, it's a representation of the water, the, the crossing of the Red Sea. Jesus in the wilderness, obviously wandering through the desert, uh, 40 years, 40 days. Like there's, there's a lot of similarities as you start to read. And like, I encourage you as you read those things, as you see these things, ask questions, make observations, and write stuff down. Um, and he gave us law, the Sermon on the Mount, quote-unquote law, on a mountain, and we saw the same with Moses, right? So a lot of people will compare Jesus' coming as to kind of like a second Moses kind of thing. Um, it's a lot different because Jesus' story is a lot greater. <laughs> but that was just kind of how he was trying to convince the Jewish people, like, hey, you really need to pay attention to this guy. You really need to pay attention to what he's saying and what's coming along here, okay? So there's an introduction to who Christ is and where he comes from in... Uh, Sorry. There's, a, there's an introduction for who he is, where he comes from, and it alternates in this, this time of teaching and this time of ministry. So you see Jesus, you see his birth, you see him being tested in the desert, and then he comes out and we get the greatest sermon ever told. And then he'll go into a period of ministry, healings, speaking to people, raising people from the dead, healing the sick, casting out demons, and then there's another period of teaching. And he goes back and forth all the way until his death. And then he comes back and he teaches some more, right? <laughs> and, it, and it's pretty cool. And uh, so, so we start with his first teaching in the Sermon on the Mount. And, and I want to point out, and I know you guys, I cheated and bumped this one over. We talked about the law and about how this is like the new law kind of thing. It's, it's what's referred to as the new covenant. And... The literal interpretation and the literal following of the law is not sufficient on its own to fulfill the will of God. You can't earn this. Christianity is the only religion that will teach you that you can't be good enough to earn your way into heaven, to please God. The only way to do that is to believe in Jesus. And these are just guidelines of how Christian living is going to look. This is what your life will look like if you love Jesus. It's, it's always about that response. We talk about it in tithe. We talk about it, you know, in the givings is that we're not giving to earn favor from God. We're giving because he gave us more than we could ever repay. We don't deserve it. We can't earn it. And the Sermon on the Mount covers topics um, including but not limited to blessings, uh, who we are in Christ, the law, how to care for ourselves, how to care for other people, and what the kingdom of heaven is and what it looks like. And so he gives us this amazing sermon that shows us how we live our lives, right? And it doesn't mean that, that Christ came to destroy the old law, the laws of Moses, the ones that all the Jews had followed up until this point. He didn't come to destroy that. In fact, I'm going to cheat a little bit because we're going to learn about this later. In 5.17, we learn um, that he didn't come to abolish it, but to fulfill that law. He came to make, make that law complete. And it's, it's a way that he was supporting that law, but not the way that the Pharisees were teaching that law. Because the Pharisees were teaching that you have to do this to get to God. And the Pharisees got to the point where here's what you're not supposed to do. So we're going to create this barrier around that so that you don't even get close to, to the, what you're not supposed to do. And then they decided, 
well, that still might be too close. And so they created another barrier. And so they just started creating all these different laws that were their laws to make sure that people didn't get close to breaking the law of God. And that was not what God had in mind at all. So when we get to the Sermon on the Mount, and the Sermon on the Mount, we talk about how it's, it's listed as um, the greatest sermon ever told, right? And there were some key figures over the course of history. There's a lot of people, a lot of people have talked about this, and I narrowed a couple of them down, um, people that you might recognize. This is President Harry Truman. Uh, President Truman uh, was around at the end of World War II. He helped set up the United Nations, uh, helped the funding to rebuild uh, Europe after the war ravaged it after World War II, helped establish NATO, um, helped the United States through economic turmoil after World War II. And President Truman said this with the Sermon on the Mount. He said, I do not believe there is a problem in this country or the world today which could not be settled if approached through the teaching of the Sermon on the Mount. The President of the United States, the greatest leader in the free world, like this guy like, was the man, right? World War II, back-to-back champs, right? United States, go, go us. He said this, and so, I mean, if you think about that, like, there's not a problem in this world that if we listen to the words of Jesus in this amazing sermon that we couldn't solve. He tells us how to live our lives. He tells us what we should be like in spirit. He tells us how we should treat other people. He tells us how we should handle conflict. I mean, we're going to dive into some heavy stuff, guys. It's going to be super convicting. I mean, as I read through this, I'm looking at myself like, dang. How am I supposed to live up to that? And I realize I can't. But if Christ is in me, he can through me. Uh, Gandhi, another great figure, right? Everybody knows Gandhi. Anybody here not know Gandhi? I'd be shocked. (laughs) Um, Gandhi, his whole life was Hindu, right? Obviously not Christian. He uh, attempted to practice nonviolence and truth in all situations. He advocated others to do the same. He lived a modest, self-sufficient life in a residential community, and he wore like basic traditional clothes, this shawl. Uh, he ate vegetarian foods, and uh, he, took, he did fasts as self-purification, as social protests. One of the greatest examples of leadership in the world. And Gandhi said I did once seriously think of embracing the Christian faith. That's a strong statement right there. I thought about leaving the faith that I've known my whole life. I thought about that. The gentle figure of Christ, so patient, so kind, so loving, so full of forgiveness, that he taught his followers not to retaliate, but turn the other cheek. When abused or struck, but to turn the other cheek, I thought it was a beautiful example of the perfect man. A guy who's Hindu, who believes in their gods and the way their system sets up, you know, like Ahimsa and like regeneration and the cycles of life and all this stuff recognizes, wow, this guy was a perfect man. There's nobody in the world, history of the world other than Jesus who lived a perfect life. And even people in other religions identify that, right? And so he looks at Jesus and what he's looking at is the Sermon on the Mount. The Sermon on the Mount is what Jesus used to teach people that. So when he talks about peace, when he talks about forgiveness and turning the other cheek, This is all stuff that he pulled from Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. He wasn't a Christian. 
and uh, it was interesting because there was a note that Gandhi wasn't Christian, but he lived in a community that endeavored to live by the teachings set forth by the Sermon on the Mount. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, if you don't know about Dietrich Bonhoeffer, read him. He's got some crazy stories, turn of the century, um, spies and all sorts. I mean, like, it's a pretty cool story. Uh, he wanted Christians to live in that way. So he would travel to India to see it practiced by non-Christians. So this guy who loved Jesus, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, wanted to see what it looked like to live out this life that Jesus had laid out for us, right? And so he would travel to India to see the people that Gandhi taught because Gandhi taught people the Sermon on the Mount. Crazy, right? The Bible's not their book of religion. But he recognized something about Jesus and the words of him that were so important that he felt everybody should know. And then Christians learned from them. Talk about faith being present and God using anybody, right? A little more recent. Martin Luther King Jr., civil rights activist, peaceful protests, humanitarian, got the Nobel Peace Prize in 1964. And he spoke about Gandhi. And so we're going to kind of like stack this on top of each other. It was in this Gandhian emphasis on love and nonviolence that I discovered the method for social reform that I had been seeking. I came to feel this way. I came to feel that this was the only morally and practically sound method open to oppressed people and their struggle for freedom. So Martin Luther King references Gandhi, who references Jesus. That's kind of where we are, right? We take on disciples underneath us. We have people that are just, you know, they're curious and they're asking questions. And they may not want to go to church, the building, because we are the church. They may not um, want to come to Christ right now. It's not our job to save people. It's our job to help bring people to a place where God can do that. And we do that by answering these questions. And so we take the words of God and we pass that on. And hopefully some of it sticks. And who knows, maybe in your life you'll live in such a way that somebody will come to Christ and they'll say, man, I met this girl, Jocelyn, and she shared Christ with me. And it changed my life. But she used Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. So now this person, through Jocelyn, through the words of Jesus, came to know God. And then somebody else. And backtrack. Is Jesus living in you? Have you read these words and do you understand? That's why we're preaching this sermon. That's why we're going over this topic. We want to make sure that like, the words of Christ are inside of us. It's great to be able to go, yeah, I know somewhere in the Bible it says this. It's even better to know, yeah, the Bible says this. Let me show you where. And a lot of what we can teach people comes straight through uh, the Sermon on the Mount. James Kennedy was an author. He wrote this book. It's called, What If the Bible Had Never Been Written? It's an interesting thought, right? I thought, I wonder if he was wondering if writing it like it had never happened or if it just hadn't been written but still happened. But he said this about the Sermon on the Mount. He said, if you were to take the sum total of all authoritative articles, not somebody's blog, right, not somebody's rant on Facebook, all authoritative articles, credibility, ever written by the most qualified 
of psychologists and psychiatrists on the subject of mental hygiene, if you were to combine them and refine them and cleave out all the excess verbiage, all the stuff that just opinions and random stuff that's not factual, if you were to take the whole meat and none of the parsley, if you were to have these unadulterated bits of pure scientific knowledge, you would have an awkward and incomplete summation of the Sermon on the Mount, and it would suffer immeasurably through comparison. If you took all the good teachings of men about how people should live their lives, about how we should interact with one another, from every source of every person who's ever written it outside the Sermon on the Mount, and you put it all together, and you tried to form some sort of this is how you should live your life, it wouldn't even come close to Jesus sitting on this hill and talking to people. And I thought it was interesting because I talked about, or I thought about this hill and I was like, okay, how big was this hill, right? And so I looked at the geographic area, not 100% sure which hill he was sitting on, but the tallest one over there is about the size of Mount Soledad. Has anybody been to Mount Soledad out in Pacific Beach? It's a little bit taller than that. So it's not this giant mountain, but it's, you know, it's a good size. It's, it's, it's pretty good. Or maybe like Cal's Mountain would be a little bit shorter. I know a lot of you guys have hiked that. Like, imagine walking three quarters of the way up Cal's Mountain and turning around and then just preaching everybody coming up that hill, right? <laughs> but these people were following him. And so Jesus saw these crowds and he went up on a mountain and he sat down. And his disciples came. And he opened his mouth and he began to teach. Now, I know I talked about asking questions, right? When you read, doing a little bit of critical thinking as you read, I know going back to school, nobody likes school, but critical thinking as you read is you ask questions. I know when there was like stuff in the back, I'd always read the questions first and then I would read the material because I wanted to know what I was looking for. So I create my own questions as I do this. And so the two things that I noted in just the first two verses of Matthew chapter 5, when Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and he sat, after he sat down, his disciples came, he opened his mouth, and he began to teach them. And the two, questions I, or the two things I noted here were, were, first, Jesus sat down. It's contrary to most pictures that you'll see when you look up the Sermon on the Mount. A lot of times you'll see him standing up and everybody's sitting down, and he's preaching out. And In this context, it wouldn't have been uncommon for the teacher of the time to sit. Can you imagine what that's like? Can everybody stand up? Everybody stand up. So I'm going to finish the sermon sitting on this step. No, I'm just kidding. Sit back down. Can you imagine if you went to church and the pastor was sitting down up front and made everybody else stand? Like, how awkward would that be, right? But this is, this is how things were done there. It wasn't uncommon. But I had to look that up to figure that out. I had to figure out that other teachers besides Jesus commonly would have sat in the center of a circle or in front of a big crowd, they would have sat down and everybody else would have been like pining just to hear what's going on. Like, what did he say? Like, you know, like they wanted to know. And so as you stood up, they can actually lean closer. You ever sat down and you have everybody like spreading out, right? And you stand up and you kind of pack in like sardines. That's how people were trying to hear the words of Jesus. They recognized there was authority and there was power in them. And the other thing I had observed in that is that he opened his mouth. He opened his mouth to teach. And the Bible, specifically Matthew, logged this down. Mr. Detail himself logged this, that 
Jesus opened his mouth to teach. And so I thought, well, duh, <laughs> right? Like, I'm going to teach you something. Did you get it? No? Oh, well, all right. I was like, okay, so what does that look like? And I realized that several times over the life of, of Jesus, he would do things that you wonder, well, they were questioning him, and he leaned down and he wrote in the sand. Why did he do that? Why did he speak in some instances and put his hands on in other instances? Why did he tell this guy, I'm going to spit in this mud and put it on your eyes to heal this blind guy. And over here, he just said, hey, you can see. And, you know, like, why did he do these things different ways? And it was because he was teaching in ways that were not verbal. So I thought, if it noted in Matthew, if he thought it was important enough to write that Jesus taught verbally, then what he's about to say is probably pretty important. So Jesus begins this list that we've identified as the Beatitudes. It's not a word that's in any English Bible. The only reason it's in your Bible is because it's a headline. The headlines were added later. It wasn't in the original text. It's not, we, we come to define. But what is, what is a Beatitude? What does that word mean? Why did we assign that word to this list of the first few verses of what Jesus talks about? The Beatitudes translates to be the joys of heaven, or a declaration of blessedness. The joys of heaven are a declaration of blessedness. And so he begins each of these beatitudes that we're going to go through over the course of this series with blessed is or blessed is this person for this reason, right? And I thought, I wonder if this is the only time that we've seen that. And I figured out that it's not. So write this down. Psalm chapter 32, verses 1 and 2. You don't have to turn there. I'm going to read it for you. It says, How blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. How blessed is the man to whom the Lord does not impute iniquity, and in whose spirit there is no deceit. Kind of sounds like a beatitude. It will start with blessed, right? Psalm 41, starting at verse 1. How blessed is he who considers the helpless. The Lord will deliver him in the day of trouble. The Lord will protect him and keep him alive, and he shall be called blessed upon the earth. Blessed is he who considers the helpless, because he will be called blessed. Blessed is he who does something for somebody else. Not so that somebody says, man, he goes out and helps people, but because that person truly needed it. One more for you. Psalm 65, verse 4. How blessed is the one whom you choose and bring near to you to dwell in your courts. We will be satisfied with the goodness of your house, your holy temple. So then I wondered what this word blessed means, right? Because you go back to Matthew chapter 5, and we're going to see a lot of that. This whole list that we know is the Beatitudes, and I'm going to read them to you because we're going to go over over in the next few weeks. I encourage you to read ahead. We'll let you know what we're going to be going over. Verses 3 to 12. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. 
Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the gentle, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who have been persecuted for the sake of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward in heaven is great. And for the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. We're in good company. <laughs> Jesus is just asking us to respond. So blessed is, this is a happy are you. Blessed are you. Happy are you. This is saying that these are people that are favored by God, whose lives have been transformed by the power of God, and they now live in a manner that reflects this transformation. Jesus came. Jesus spoke. He asked us to do something. Blessed are you for responding. And the implication here that we're seeing in this list is blessed. And here's why. The implication here is that these Beatitudes draw a line between those who are believers and those who aren't. People who don't hear the words of Jesus and respond. And it doesn't, it doesn't say Christians here. Because obviously we saw that Gandhi can respond to that. But Christ is calling us to him. And that's the ultimate goal for us is that he desires us to be in a relationship with him. So in that regard, Gandhi kind of missed the point. But he lived in such a way that that's what Christ calls us to live. Live in this way, but believe in me. And up until this point, as we look at Matthew, the only message we've heard from Jesus was, repent for the kingdom of heaven is near. What does that mean, Jesus? What does repent for the kingdom of heaven is near? I don't understand. Hey, why don't you come up on this mountain with me? I got something you should hear. We got three chapters that we're really going to look into this. And I apologize that it was a little academic to get things started out. I just really wanted you guys to understand how serious Jesus was when he shared these words. This was really important to him. People refer to it as the greatest sermon ever told. I don't think Jesus sat down with that intention. I think Jesus sat down with the intention, intention of, let's share life. This is how you live a life worthy of the call. And so if we're going to live that life worthy of the call, we need to understand the words of God. So I would encourage you to make it a point. I know I'm not going to be here because we're going to get mercy. She's coming back. We're excited. But I encourage you to be here. <laughs> Blessed are the faithful. I don't know. But yeah, come, bring a friend, like, read, read ahead. And it's, it's not difficult because we're only going to go a couple verses at a time, so it's not going to take you an hour to read through three chapters or however long it would take. It's read a couple verses, ask a couple questions. Why does it say this? What does this word mean? And if you guys need help, if you need resources as to, like, help kind of look at that, we'll help you. But the best resource we're going to be able to give you, come on Sundays and hang out with us. Um, Barry's going to come back up, do a little bit more worship. Um, 
I just want you guys to think about that. Um, worship God, and really, we're just we're trying to have a relationship with Him, and so um, worship's an important aspect of that in our lives. Um, it gives us the opportunity just to express the, to, to God how thankful we are and who He is to us. Um, so let's just worship together, and uh, we'll do communion and stuff, and then. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.